0: Climate podcast.
1: George MacLeod, who founded the Iona Community, used to say only a demanding common task builds community. And what we have in climate change is a demanding common task. And part of the joy that can come out of that is to use it as a context in which to build community.
2: This nation of, of me, you know? Like, I want, I want, I want, I need, I this, that, me, me, me. And so thinking outside of that... Uh, I guess, paradigm or something is really hard for a lot of people, especially when it comes to like random people who are outside of your circle of friends or outside of your family. Um, because all of a sudden, then you're you really are being an altruistic individual who 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 I guess is just really unique. I guess people that that think outside of those circles of the, the ones who are close and near, dear to your heart is like really challenging for a lot of people. Even if it does contribute to climate change on like such a mass scale that is ultimately going to affect the quality of life of the next generation, it could be your own kids, and that's what it will be.
3: I recorded 100 conversations I had about climate change and I'm sharing parts of those conversations with everyone. Welcome. This is the second episode. There's a bit of project background in the first episode. But all you really need to know is that these are the voices of fantastic folk who volunteered to chat with me and keep the conversation moving. There are a couple of unbeat sweary words. My climates and I recorded conversations where and when we could. On the phone or on Skype in lunch breaks and in stairwells, so the sound quality varies. Bear with us, I promise the content is worth listening carefully to. So, how are we talking with each other about climate stuff?
4: Cause it's kind of, I have like a set group of friends that I will speak to about this kind of stuff because they all go to the same like youth group that I do, we all go to see an interaction. So we'll all speak about it because we. that's a lot of us, that's how we know each other, so it seems fine to speak about it, but... There are quite a lot of my friends that I just wouldn't think about. I like, wouldn't think to speak about it with them. So I don't know, yes, I, I, like, I want to try and speak to people about it more and people who maybe aren't informed. Like, It's good to have other points of view, but at some point we have to say, here is just a concrete fact that we then have to build on. And actually, we don't have time for fannying about anymore we just don't have time to convince every single person when there has been so much research and so much research which demonstrates urgency actually do you know what if a few people are not convinced that's got to be okay now we've
5: got to kind of uh, keep it rolling keep keep this train rolling out the station a lot of places now people don't know their neighbors you know, so no one comes up with neighborhood solutions. And I think that's a, a great shame because I think, you know, everyone as an individual can do something, but if you can then get a whole block of flats together to do something, and then a whole row of flats to do something, you know, it it becomes a much bigger impact.
6: The last few years for me has been about partly about peeling off layers of ideas and culture and things that i have been brought up with or um, things that had just through living, you know, from coming out of education and going into work, you kind of you add all these layers of what's normal and what's acceptable and what the people around you are doing and, and it, it, it kind of covers up what's maybe at your core and what you really believe. So there's been an element of unpeeling some of those layers. But there's also, I think, just through being around people who are a bit further along the journey and the understanding of, of climate and ecological breakdown has shifted the Overton window for me. My personal Overton window has gone from, you know, fairly mainstream, normal, <laughs> if you like in inverted commas, way of looking at the world, albeit, you know, fairly green-leaning, has shifted me along... To something that's a bit more radical and a bit more um a bit more difficult to square with business as usual
3: have people been so, seeking you out greta to talk to you about it because they know that you're <laughs> a bit interested. yeah
6: that's been i mean that's been happening a bit over the last couple of years really since so i started doing the masters in 2016 a sustainability masters and I think just, I started trying to have more conversations about it and I started posting things about it on my social media. And and I do think that it's given people permission to ask about it and it's given people an opportunity to tell me what they're worried about. Or So I have. I've had a lot of... It's been mixed, I think. It's been people who are already quite aware who want to talk about it and there's been people who are not aware who cautiously want to ask me about it and i always feel with that that second group they're kind of interested but they don't really want to know there's a sort of can i can i ask you these things but can you give me an answer that isn't going to challenge me too much like there's a wariness that i'm going (laughs) to preach so i always approach those conversations really carefully and and i think my approach has changed over the time depending on you know what how I'm feeling about it my state of mind I think last summer I was feeling really low about it all and it was quite hard to connect with people about it because I knew that they weren't ready for that they weren't ready for me to talk about despair and grief and rage and and so when people were saying you know it's really interesting what you're studying and what are you learning it's like oh boy like I'm learning that it's awful, it's all awful, and I don't know what I'm going to do, you can't say that, so, or I didn't feel I could say that, I didn't feel like it was the right thing to say, the right way to have that conversation, so I find it quite hard in that sort of phase to communicate what was in my mind and in my heart, but I find it a bit easier now, I feel like I'm, I'm a bit more ready to have challenging conversations with people and And I'm a bit more accepting that everybody's where they are and you start from where people are and, you know, there's no point in kind of shouting at people about stuff they're doing wrong. You know, everybody's doing things for different reasons and we're all part of these systems that are really hard to change and, but it's, I think it's really important to keep having those conversations even if they're difficult.
7: I've read other things that storytelling is massively um, valuable, so if you, and it, it's kind of like a, I guess it's like humans wanting to fit in with one another, but um, people who found out that one of their colleagues or friends was flying less because of climate change were um, twice as likely to fly less or to, to even half their flights. Um, and people who, who are told in, when they go into a restaurant that there are, uh, that you know, a certain number of people today who ordered the vegetarian option are 40% more likely to start eating a bit more vegetarian. Um, And people who, if you, if everyone in your neighbourhood has, or a certain percentage of people in your neighbourhood have solar panels, you're a certain percentage more likely to get them. And, I mean, you can chalk that up to, like, humans kind of learning and observing from looking at one another. But what it also is, is I think it's, like, storytelling is one of the best ways that we communicate.
0: I think it's, uh, as you mentioned, something quite personal because at the end of the day, um, we as individuals also
8: have to act um, to to tackle climate change. And people, we really, really often they don't want to be told what to do, or like you know that their habits are not good for the planet, and yet alone for themselves. I had this uh, this email from a friend who works in and Gas in Saudi Arabia and uh, he actually asked me uh, about my involvement in the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals and uh, and if I knew of any group that um that does some sustainable development work in Saudi Arabia, and I was like, that's such a nice, uh, you know, that's such a n- nice email to have because it means that in in my small, like you know, advocacy work, I've actually inspired someone to be interested in, uh, in
0: something completely different from oil and gas industry.
9: When mm. someone states something that they're doing um, for the environment, you kind of have a, I noticed this in myself. I have a sort of guilty reaction where I go, oh god, I should be doing this thing. And they're doing it, and and maybe that can be good sometimes to prompt you into, it, because um, mm. we're all social animals, and we look at our, you know, we lived in communities, and we we look at what our neighbours are doing, and we go, oh, okay, if this is the norm, then it's okay that I do it too, and you know, no one wants to be ostracised, and um, so it's, it can, on a on on one level that can work, but sometimes the guilt thing just doesn't at all, and it's too much, and and then you get defensive about your actions and that's not good either so
5: yeah some of it is like i guess it's like trying to practice like being non-judgmental about people's decisions about things and like sometimes that's really hard when you're like but this is a fundamental thing that i think is important about the way that the world works but also sometimes it's about going like but where has that view that you have come from and where has it what is it attached to and like is you know, this decision
10: that you've made in this moment is probably a reflection of, like, lots of different things that have happened in your
5: life. I, was, I heard um,
10: Kate Tempest on Six Music the other day, and she said, if somebody else you'd said this
5: to her, that she'd written it down and pinned it up on the wall, so she sees it when she goes into her studio, and it was, shock them into focus with clarity of intent, I thought, I love that, absolutely love that. But then I thought, do I love that? Because actually, I kind of don't do that. Like, I
4: try so hard to, to, I think it's all about meeting people where they are and building relationships and sort of being really, like, visibly
11: sustainable and visibly doing these things differently
4: and and modelling that. But maybe sometimes just being a bit of an arsehole about it
5: is more effective. <laughs> I don't know, I've not really experimented with
3: that. <laughs> I found quite a few people who I chatted with were glad to be given permission and a space to talk about it. Sometimes, in other situations, they didn't feel able to be totally open about how they felt about the environment, for various reasons. Yeah, so I think if you appeal to the
5: financial aspect, and if you maybe, the other one would be, it's po- positive publicity, which might bring more members in and get people interested in your either your organisation or your uh, shop or whatever it is, then people are willing to listen. But I think sometimes if you just go, well, you should be doing this because it's right and it's good for the environment, it's like shutters go up because there's been so, so many people seem to think it's really, really expensive to do this sort of thing. And, you know... We don't
3: have lots of money and we try to do the, the best we can and use the resources that are available. Yeah, and I think that that's definitely true. Like, you need to be gentle with people's, like, um, guardedness to kind of get away in. But I'm also, when I hear you, I'm like, is it? are you hiding a little bit of yourself that you're not embarrassed that, like, that would be lovely to come out? Like you Know it's not as extreme as somebody hiding their sexuality or hiding their um, so, but it's it is a bit like you know, I am actually an environmentalist and proud.
5: <laughs> I think it's see, when I was in five, um, it was well known. I mean, like I said to you before, that I had the nickname at work of the, the Green Fairy because I was the one that came up with all the environmental side of things, um, and you know, that that was well known, but. Since being up here, I've not been as kind of forceful and open about it, and I don't know quite why.
3: You're in the you're in know. the closet, Anne. You're in the environmental closet. Well,
5: I think I am. Actually, I've never thought of it like that, but I think maybe I am. So maybe I need to kind of address that because I certainly didn't used to be. And I mean, Rowan knows when we were when he was growing up everything went in the right bins um you know litter didn't get dropped on the ground and he won't admit it but when he was about eight years old i remember walking up the street and there was this person just dropped something on the street and he was like they should not be talking He was really loud and i was really proud of that um because oh did you say you remember
3: it? no i don't oh he's, he doesn't think it happened it did happen I spoke to Anne again, a few weeks later.
5: Something you said a couple of weeks ago, that I kind of was living like in the closet sort of thing. And it made me realise, since moving to Aberdeenshire, we've had a, a lot to deal with. And I think a lot of what I used to be really enthusiastic and passionate about kind of got left behind. Um, so it's really quite enthused me again. You,
3: you feel like you look really confident and happy just now
5: in your I life. I am feeling much more confident and, and happy and it's kind of reignited something in me.
12: Like you said, as a as a small business owner, he's trying to, he's trying to grow, but trying to do the right thing morally at the same time. Um, the balance is shifting towards the morals over the material.
3: So Could you see yourself coming out? as an environmentalist publicly <laughs> would you put it on your dating profile would put it you on my dating
12: profile that's a great question i like that question um <laughs> i don't think it would be that i mean i mean i i'd certainly don't i am certainly not anti-environmentalist i mean if you are then Well, you're probably doing something wrong aren't you but i think there's like in most things in life there's a degree of if there's a you know there's an environmentalist there's an environmentalist an environmentalist and there's like uber environmentalist I think I'm probably somewhere in the middle, uh, but as as time goes on, you know, I could be tempted to move towards the other way, if things are, are, are that way, and if I'm still single at that point, then of course I'm going to put it on my Tinder profile.
10: <laughs> hey fellas, I'll just come out of the He cl- hey fellas, I'm an environmentalist, standing there on my heart and <laughs> my boots, yeah. Um <laughs> Have you ever tried going vegan? No, I am.
3: And do you have these chats on the rig? You're joking, aren't you? I don't know. What's it like? (laughs) Sit around. No. No.
10: No. No, no. No, no. No, the oil industry is very much the sharp end of capitalism. The, the, the running conversation offshore is probably usually m- my new car is bigger than, and better than your new car. Really? Yeah, boys and their toys, basically, you know?
3: So do you not find any like-mindedness? Do you not?
10: I do. I, 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 I do. I, I, I have pockets of like-mindedness, but not not much in my work environment.
3: The next clip is a bit hard to hear because I'm speaking to Jim quite late at night while he's on his way home from his new job. He's not been able to talk to anyone about climate stuff for a while, even though this is very much on his mind. At the time we spoke, he was awaiting trial, having been arrested as part of Extinction Rebellion Action. Extinction Rebellion are a global environmental movement who are non-violent but are using civil disobedience to try and compel the government to take urgent action on the climate crisis. We'll hear more about them later in the series. Here's Jim. I recently moved to London and uh, I've got a job here and when I
13: say recently I mean very recently. I've not been in this job for even three weeks. I moved down from Edinburgh on the Sunday and I started work on the Monday Uh, and since then I've not been able to talk really to anyone in person about the climate crisis which is a big break from Edinburgh when I was a member of Extinction Rebellion as you probably know and uh helped organise and was arrested for my actions with extinction already. Uh, going from that yeah. to environment where I never talk about it at all. And have to you know, when people say, Oh, what's your what's your interest in fact? I go, oh, I can wiggle my eyebrows. I can't be like I've done this crazy stuff and the world is ending and we need to do stuff about it. We need to be around people that are I don't think they're normal, I don't think many people are normal, but people who are pretending to be normal, pretending that everything is normal, is a bit weird. I looked at my contract and they reserved the right to to fire me if I get arrested for, I think, anything that isn't a minor driving offence for some reason. Okay. Yeah, so, I mean it's normal and, and, you know, I wouldn't want to work anywhere that wouldn't employ me yeah. for for this. Um, but I also wouldn't want to find out because I certainly, you know, as I said, I moved back to London because I ran out of money. So I need them to pay me at least once or twice <laughs> before yeah. I can start making such brash moves.
3: Well, But you never know, there might, they might all be secretly Extinction Rebellion as well. Well, they might be. One question I'm quite interested in is, do environmental intentions matter or just good actions, regardless of the motivation behind them? Just a quick word here, I recorded some of these conversations with my baby daughter in the room, so she's adding something to the conversation here. Do you think the intention behind why we do something is important or is it important that we just do the action? So for example if we are going to change to do greener ways is it not important that we do that because we want to be greener rather than because we want to save money
10: no it's irrelevant what matters is action good wishes aren't going to solve the
1: problem action is going to solve the problem so you would assume
10: that actions came from people's awareness and passion and,
1: and happiness but It's like an actor. It doesn't matter what an actor feels when you see them on telly or on stage or in film. Uh, It matters what effect you get from it and what the audience gets from that. It's irrelevant what the actor feels. They might as well be a robot. I don't think it matters. I think you'd imagine that they accompanied one another, but I don't think people's emotions are necessary. I think the only thing in the equation that would make a difference is action.
3: I'm not sure. I, I think that... I, I'd like to think both the actor analogy, I'd like to think that you they feel... And then, and there's truth in that, and I'd like to think that with the intentions behind why you do something are important. No, I, I don't agree. Hmm. I think that... Intentions are all very well and good,
6: but they doth butter no parsnips. I think you need to uh, need to do something. You want to be effective, and is it more effective to get the thing done without explaining why you're getting it done? I think a lot about that. That kind of an intention as well. I think like does it matter if somebody puts solar panels on their house because they want cheap electricity or because they want to stop using fossil fuels? Like what? How important is the intention behind things? And I think generally, I feel like it's really important that actually this is this is stuff that you need to weave through the whole of your life and and changing culture, changing people's ideas of what's important away from money and towards protecting everything on the planet, everything that's important to us, is that's quite crucial. So I think there's something about Intention and invisibility and 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 being proud to be somebody that's a conscientious protector, that's an earth protector. That's it's kind of a a branding problem for for eco conscious stuff, I think. But the more of us who feel like it's okay to say I'm doing this because I care about the air that we breathe and the water we drink and the future our kids are inheriting, like that's okay, And we're allowed to say that, and you know, there's this art, sort of circular argument about whether individual actions are worth it or not, whether they make an impact. And one of the things that really makes them make an impact is when you do them visibly, when you when you say, "I'm I'm not just getting the Eurostar to Paris. I'm getting the Eurostar to Paris because I don't want to fly."
10: Yeah, and that has
6: a different impact on the people who hear or watch what you're doing.
3: I spoke to Debbie. She isn't convinced that climate change is man-made, but here's the
11: twist. She's still making
3: loads of green lifestyle changes.
11: I'm not convinced that climate change is man-made. I think there is definitely climate change happening, but I suspect that a lot of it is just the natural kind of fluctuations that the planets go through. Yeah, I've talked to um, my brothers and stuff, uh, and they're all very much of the opinion... I must be mad, how could I not think it is man-made? All the scientists say so. For a start, it isn't all scientists who say that, but I think those who don't hold that opinion, they're probably becoming more and more in the minority, possibly because it's correct and it is man-made. I'm not convinced that that is the case, but I think it's difficult if they want to get funding that is an area in which there is loads of funding and loads of interest. So it's not in their interests to say they don't believe it's man-made. It is in their interest to say they believe it is man-made and therefore there needs to be research into it and to follow that line. It's something that would probably be damaging to their careers. Change changed my feeling that just in case, and even if my changes aren't going to make that much difference, it's better to be making them. I'm probably challenging myself to make more of them. I think what you're saying about flights, driving, what you eat, and so on, are very good points.
3: And Anne is otherwise known as the Green Fairy. Her partner doesn't believe in climate change. What's that like?
5: My partner, that's a bit different. He actually does not believe in climate change, which is quite weird for me. But, he does believe in not having loads of pollutants around. He hates all the plastic that's in the ocean. So, although he doesn't believe in climate change, he does go along with everything I do because, for him, it's just common sense that he wants to live in a clean, healthy environment. But we do have arguments um, because he's gone on YouTube and he's watched a load of you know, these sceptics videos and everything that you get. Um, so he has watched all of these and he's like, oh well, you know, the Earth does, um, the climate does vary and we do go through dips and you know, highs and I, I've said to him, I said, yeah, the planet does, but if you look at you know the progression and how extreme dips and highs have become in the last century, you can see where we're going to, but, uh, yeah, we've had a few discussions about that but because he is happy for us to, like, grow our own veg and do all the things that kind of are meant to be, have a positive effect on the environment. I'm okay with it because it's like, well, he can believe what he wants, but at least he's still doing, you know, everything that I'm asking him to, like, um not use plastic bottles, have refillable bottles, and um, you know, all the things that we should be doing. It's very, it is very strange, because we goes along with everything, um, but doesn't necessarily believe in climate change.
3: I think Meredith's story is quite interesting. If you don't know Arthur's Seat, it's a hill in Edinburgh, which Meredith is trying to get folk to run up again and again. I'll let her explain.
8: And in my last year of university, I joined a um, leadership development program for young people um, through the 2050 Climate Group, um, which the aim is to sort of empower and inspire young people to take action to transition Scotland to a low-carbon economy. And uh, when I was on that program, I met a guy called Dave Bell, and we started talking, and we, I realized we were coming from a very similar place. We both wanted to do something, and um, we were frustrated at the narrative around climate change actions, so it was very kind of doom and gloom, and very focused on, you need to stop doing this, or you need to cut this out your life, and it was all quite scary, and it was quite easy to turn people off. So we wanted to create something that actually turned that on its head and said, what can you do that's positive And what changes can you make that make sense for you? And instead of overloading people by saying, you need to change uh, your diet and your transport habits and your consumption and, and everything about your life, instead, we thought, well, what would it look like if we just encourage people to take some small actions to get the ball rolling? And how, how could that snowball and how could they inspire their friends and family? Um, And I guess the other thing that that development program gave me was it showed me there were so many other young people in their 20s who were on that program who also didn't have a fully formed plan. They didn't have funding. They didn't have all this um, time and resources, but they were just getting on and doing stuff. Uh, And it really inspired me that actually I didn't need this really polished thing that I needed to create. Just Dave and I squirreled away and then take out and say, this is how we're going to fight climate change. Actually, it was more about just doing something and from that um our organization which is called mad challenges was born uh, firstly we run big outdoor endurance events uh, our most famous one is called mad seat and it takes place and um, every june and it's a uh, 12-hour um, or 24-hour or a six-hour challenge where people continuously climb up and down Arthur's seat. So it gets people outside in their environment in a really unusual way, doing a challenge they would never normally do. Instead of people being sponsored financially, they're sponsored in um, carbon-saving behaviour pledges. We use a platform called Donation, who um, which is a small platform that's um, run by an amazing woman called Hermione Taylor, and it gives people the opportunity to pick from about 50 different lifestyle actions they can make. So if you say, actually, I'm going to support my friend who's taking part in Mad Seat by pledging to be... Uh, vegetarian for two months, or to cycle to work one day a week for two months. The platform will calculate how much carbon dioxide that saves over that period, and you you make that carbon pledge to your friend or family member taking part, and that's how they um that's how they sponsor you. So we take out all the money, uh, and instead we get people to pledge their time and their action, rather than their finances. Um, we think it's a great platform because it's really inclusive. It doesn't um, it doesn't require someone to have um, a bigger amount of money to put behind a project. Um, we also think it's inclusive because what we're trying to get people to understand is that they don't need to take action in all these areas at once. If they just pick one to start, that can then um, snowball into other things. Um, and donation is brilliant because it tells you not only how much carbon you save, but also um, how that behavior change impacts other areas of your lifestyle. So for example, on transport, it could say, not only are you saving uh, carbon by not taking the bus to work or not driving, you're also saving money and you're improving your health and your wellbeing by being out in, um, in fresh air. So we really want to help people connect the dots in different areas of their, of their life to understand how small behavior changes don't just mean good things for the environment, they mean good things for um, their, their entire life this year we had over 1500 behavior pledges made which saved um over 55,000 kilograms of CO2 so uh, I'd like to see that creep over 2,000 maybe even a bit higher. We want them to be family friendly and accessible um, and inclusive so we try and tailor all aspects of the event to make sure that people don't face any barriers to taking part whether that's um, physically which is why we have the different kind of option levels. I mean or... still
3: six hours yeah. of running up six hours is still
8: a lot but we encourage lot. people to set their own target. It's not about um, beating a record it's about what they want to achieve um and we also offer free or discounted um, tickets to anyone that might have a financial barrier to taking part because we want this to be a conversation that includes everyone and it's for for everybody not just a a few people who can um afford to be part of the the discussion and have a seat at the table
3: that's important isn't it yeah i'm gonna try and do it (gasps) next year
8: (sighs) yeah and um, we've got the date set for um 30th of may i think it is so um yeah 29th and 30th of may so we will look forward to having you take part
3: i will definitely be a six hour person <laughs> that's
8: okay that's our most popular challenge yeah
3: <laughs> uh, yeah I, I mean six hours of babysitting is quite a challenge for me <laughs> at
8: the moment but yeah well we've it. had people yeah bring their kids along and. Um, we have like a whole base camp set up, so and yeah. um, we've had quite a few families bring their young ones along, and their parents have taken turns, or or um. Oh yeah, uh, we could do ha-
3: that actually. That would be yeah. yeah. So what happens when we get deeper into the conversation and think about this idea of including everyone's voice? I'm interested in a just transition. What do we mean by that?
14: One of the, the struggles that, that I've had, like in the last, well, I guess five years, is the trying to uh, reconcile saving the planet versus like accessibility needs, because I can't walk very well. Like I drive a lot more because I can't, I can't walk as far and I feel really guilty about that. And then when I was using a power chair, like that's, that's using up an incredible amount of electricity. Um, and I think there's lots of things that are disabled friendly that are environmentally unfriendly And it's a really difficult thing to reconcile because you don't... Like, disabled people shouldn't be the first person, first people to pay the price for saving the planet and helping climate change, but having been through it as as a disabled person and as a carer of a disabled person, it's, yeah, it's a difficult... It's really hard to kind of work out at what point you go, well, do you know what? This person's comfort level is more important And, and where you can kind of, try and still make environmentally responsible decisions.
3: What do you think is needed?
14: More acknowledgement from both sides, so kind of less guilting of disabled people for using a car more, um, or, you know, all that kind of thing. But then also, somehow maybe working with disabled groups to see what changes they can make without Without being guilted and without feeling like it's somehow their responsibility to make up for the impact that they're having, um, I think it's always about talking to the talking to the groups and talking and with the people that is actually affecting rather than kind of trying to come up as
0: preachy.
2: There's a group of folks here in town called the NAACP Environmental Climate Justice and Action Committee that I've been going to their meetings now for about a year or so, and. Um, they're putting together a climate forum, an intergenerational climate forum um, coming up in August for folks here in the community, uh, particularly folks who are, who are on the east side of town here in Gainesville, which is predominantly African-American, to come together with folks from the west side of town, which is predominantly white, um, from, again, the intergenerational um, situation or, or thought. To just come together in the same space and share one another's opinions, understand the quote-unquote other's perspective about these issues, and I, I, I hope and I, I believe to come to some conclusions as to ways to move forward together. Are you familiar with that, with the concept of like otherness? And how if you go into a community that you're not at all part of, and you're trying to study that community, You have to have certain techniques and strategies in order to understand how to to, how to interact with that community um so you know some of those techniques and strategies are like literally just going to that space for like months and just simply being there and and coming assimilated into what is normal for that group of people you know and then they'll they'll accept perhaps Subtle things that you might want to accomplish through your goals and through your agenda, because they're they they now can trust you because you've spent time to be who they are, and I think that's just like a, 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 a globalized society nowadays is all about convenience and speed and like. It, the, the the global culture of, of consumption and capitalism seems to be a, a big limiting factor for the time that's needed to allow other people to understand that you really do care about them. I think the thing about the richer people emitting most emissions is... is...
13: Very interesting. I I think it's something like the ten percent richest people emit fifty percent of emissions. Kind of in whatever community you look at, like globally, it's roughly the richest ten percent emit fifty percent of emissions. In any in any given town, it's probably the richest ten percent emit fifty percent emissions, etc., etc. One criticism you hear quite often is, you know, what the UK isn't the problem. It's places like China and India who emit a huge amount of carbon emissions. And It's like yes, currently they are. But when you look at cumulative emissions, you know, it's not all about just the emissions which are going out each day or each year. It's about, you know, the total amount of carbon emissions we have in the atmosphere. And that's built up over the past 150, 200 years. Um, And historically, it is the US and the UK who have emitted a huge amount because we are the birthplace of the Industrial Revolution. You know, we kicked it all off. It's it's our fault who started it all. So we do have the biggest responsibility to to reduce it now so a few years ago i went to i did fly to america to join um the protests
1: at standing rock against the pipeline that was being built um through reservation land and i went as an environmental activist and i left as a um with a deep commitment to decolonize myself and our own island. Uh, and that was what we were asked to do. It's time for you to go home now, touch your own soil and and work to um, work to stop this from happening elsewhere. Um, and f- so for me, the, the whole experience was really about acknowledging my own complicity as a as a white man from England. The people that will be most affected are the most vulnerable people in our fragile planet. They're the ones who've already had their lives decimated by colonialism and free market capitalism. The acknowledgement that our actions are having an impact on people on the other side of the world, I think is quite a new way of thinking. Um, Actually, if people can grasp the global uh, cause and effect, then they can begin to see themselves as being part of a a web of life
4: more.
0: It's also an LGBTQ issue because even in in Western civilization, marginalized groups are most likely to feel the effects of climate change uh, before other people. So, for instance, I was reading some stats about how um, uh, homelessness is more m- more widespread among LGBTQ people because they're most vulnerable and maybe sometimes they don't get help from people in the network because they they get abandoned by them, and so they're gonna they're gonna feel the effects of climate change before other categories of people. So that's why it's also because I I think you know I think that climate change is about climate justice and about inequalities that already exist among people because of the system so obviously people who are more unequal in the system are, are going to be hit harder by the effects of climate change
15: you know, climate justice we actually talked about climate justice um, in in pittsburgh um, and, and that was at the time it was very much a conversation around the people who are going to get hurt the most and the soonest are in, you know, the mo- in in the least developed parts of the world, and they are the ones who are going to feel the effects soonest. They're the ones who are going to feel the effects hardest. They're the ones who are, en- are going to end up having to pick up and move, um, and and we in the West need to understand that this is. This is going to affect us, but it's not going to affect us as deeply or as much as it's going to affect indigenous populations, um, especially in low-lying areas around the globe. And we need to be prepared for that, and we need to accept that. um, We we are going to be asked to do more. So we are going to be asked to accept climate refugees. We are going to be asked to, to and expected to transfer technologies, transfer for money dollars all sorts of stuff in order to look after those parts of the world that are going to be hit hardest by the climate emergency which arguably has been caused by us but is having effects on them and so that was the conversation that was taking place two years ago what I found is that and I, and I don't it would be too simple to say that the discussion has been hijacked but in some ways that discussion has now moved into not being about climate justice per se for the poorest parts of the world, but using that to drive an agenda that I think is more about changing sy- systemic change in political systems. How, how did this stop being a discussion around how we fix the climate crisis and instead has now become a, a conversation around t- destroying capitalism and, and bringing in socialism? Which is a valid conversation. I'm not saying it's not a valid conversation, but if that's what we're going to do, if we're going to change the entire political system because that's what's required to solve the climate crisis, then we won't solve the climate crisis. Because I don't think we can change the entire political system of the world before it becomes too late.
3: Some climates spoke to me about grief, depression and rage. I'm
4: getting very caught up in the politics of climate change at the moment. And that uh, can be a dangerous route because you can feel very helpless. So I think I need to spend some time just thinking local.
3: There's a line that I've written in my notebook, which is um, the only way to deal with despair is to do something in your own life.
4: That's That's an excellent, that's the truth. That's totally true. That you can't, if you just sit there, going kind of flapping your hands and just sort of gesturing at the world <laughs> like, guys, then you you'd out of bloody bed.
7: I think my approach at first was I think climate change it still does in a way, but like absolutely terrified me into a way where I just didn't want to do anything. Like I didn't want to they didn't because like I think that I was too scared to acknowledge it so I was doing like very minimal stuff um and actually what I needed to do was kind of pull my head out of the sand for a wee bit and actually do the research because as soon as I started actually researching it I felt a bit better and part of that was like I feel more in control of this now and I'm not overwhelmed with fear because I know exactly what the problem is but another level of it was um, as soon as you start researching a lot of organizations that are fighting against climate change say you know, this is possible, we just need to do this and this, and we need to focus on this. And I was so convinced, like, no, the end of the world is here, I can't do anything, I'm just going to bury my head in the sand because it's too scary. And almost, like, doing anything to acknowledge it would be too much. And actually, as soon as I started just doing little bits, like, I felt so much better. Have you come across Brenny
5: Brown? She's one of my favourites. She does a, She's a... She's a researcher, but she studies social work social care and um, the big thing that she does is she studies shame and
6: but uh, she talks about how you can't selectively numb emotion so people who have difficult dark emotions often numb with alcohol or food or shopping or gambling or but if you numb the difficult emotions then you numb the positive emotions as well you can't In order to sort of live wholeheartedly, you have to experience all of the things that are
5: in you. It's this sort of difference between fitting in with people and belonging. So you kind of, if you're pretending or if you're hiding something, you're hiding who you are, you never really get that sense of belonging because you're not being accepted for who you are. But if you are completely who you are
10: and people accept you for that, then the sense of belonging is much stronger than just fitting in. For me, it was like almost a sense of grief. Because the more I realised the damage we were doing, the more I sort of grieved for it. It was literally like four months where I had two of my best friends, my brother and my father all died, you know, in that space at the time. I then took a year away from the working and travelled and made the decision to go back to university so I mean I was probably still grieving when I read the articles and that somehow oh this is you know but I mean if you think about it when you you, you apply the, that, that process of grief um, you know the, the different stages I, I think personally I went through similar stages to that when I was reading reading about environmentalism yeah, I mean, the, the whole grief process, I think, you know, the more you see or the more you imagine the world that it could end up being with all the information you're taking on, it's a pretty it's, a, it's a pretty doomsday sort of apocalyptic vision. And that implies that an end in things, uh, you know, i mean the way we're going at the moment if we don't take some radical action it it could end up being the end
6: of humanity you know what i mean for me that was a really necessary process that i had to go through that pretty miserable experience of understanding and accepting it all before i was in a solid position to act so you can you can take action at any level but I think there's some, I, I describe it as being forged in a fire. It's that kind of, it gives you that strength of, you've, you've really understood and accepted the badness of what's happening, the
15: difficulty of what's
6: happening, and that roots you in a stronger position to take action. So it's, it's similar to the grief cycle, and there's a, there's a woman called Joanna Macy who writes about um, active hope, um, is her thing and it's in and she's a, I think she's a psychotherapist or a psychologist But she talks about this cycle as well and that there's a uh, That it's a kind of an ongoing cycle that you have to have time to Grieve and you have to have time to observe and and then there's a moment when you take action and that it's kind of cyclical I
4: think it's something different from grief because grief suggests Letting something go that's over Do you know what I mean? And kind of bidding... It's sort of... Because one of the stages of grief is letting go. And we're not there yet. It's more like... Watching... Like, something happening. And... Do you ever have those dreams where you either you can't speak or you nobody understands the language that you're using and you feel like you're shouting and pointing and everyone's ignoring you? Like, look, that car's about to go for bliss and no one can hear you. So I don't know whether grief is actually the right word for me. I definitely have the kind
9: of anger of the of someone who is bereaved. I, I guess it's sometimes about having space in your life to... to let it in as well and then to have the energy to react to it because um yeah I guess Mm. your average person might say well I've got this this and this and I just can't take this on as well Um, absolutely activism is tiring um yeah my my energy for it comes in peaks and troughs and like age 24 I was like I'm doing this (laughs) and and I I feel like I've had that kind of energy has been going and going and and I'm, I, I would say like right now i'm definitely going through some form of um exhaustion from it There's no other way to describe it but i've i've i think i've overread of to the point where i, I maybe i about a few weeks ago i was actually getting quite overwhelmed just it's funny though because i thought i'd sort of been through that but i feel like i'm going through it again and maybe just would even describe it as some sort of depression that i've been having about it
1: Dylan Thomas said, mm-hmm. do, "Do not go gently into that good into that good night. Rage, rage against the dying of the light." And I and I I've never been able to express my anger very well, but nothing rouses me up more than um, than this.
3: What do you do with your rage?
1: <laughs> Someone <laughs> asked me that the other day, and I and I haven't responded yet. They texted me, and I was like, "I need a bit of time to think about that." Mm. Uh, yeah, it's a really good one. Um, I think my rage often con- conceals sadness. Actually, when I when I look beneath it, um, I've actually been training in Aikido, oh. and it sounds like a bit of a um, a, a left field response to say, but having a practice, like a committed practice, which um, which embodies a philosophy of. Uh, yeah, it's really valuable. And so Aikido is all about taking um, taking the energy of the aggressor and using that energy against them to disarm them, not to cause them not to kind of break their limbs, but just to um, to deflect and transform the energy. So uh, so really it's about, cent- it's about being very centered quite, it's quite complex to me because I, so at 12 I got Lyme's disease and I only actually found out it was Lyme's a couple of years ago. So I, um, I spent most of my teenage years out of school and do, did very little studying. So, um, uh, but I, I find it very connected to my sense of hope and despair and these cycles, um, around that, which are very, um, which I see in other people a lot. And, and I also, um, recognize how vital how increasingly vital it is to to have those conversations i've got a lot of friends who are new parents how did how like that yourself how do how how do you relate to a future that feels so sometimes apocalyptic sometimes so exciting and um and we're often tied to like oh no there's hope and oh no there's not and like you say, it's a huge um, up and down, but that was my experience of limes and my own personal energy. It's an interesting connection. Also, because limes is the cause of the. It's because we don't have any top predators. It's the deer that transports something that's made by wolves.
4: And, you know, I do think, I, as I get older, I am increasingly a preacher of self care because you can't save the world if you're. If you're really um, unhappy, do I lose the capacity to be of useful kindness? If I have no kindness left for myself, yeah. You know, I think, I think anger and rage have their place and are necessary, but despair is just. Um it's not an active thing and we
5: need, we need action. So I think um, joy is active, but despair just lingers, you know, so I think, um, yeah, joy.
15: You want to change the world, you can't stand by. Just you know, man, it stops inside.
5: That's the dream, isn't it? That we all just like communicate a bit better, listen a bit more.
3: Thank you to all my climates. In this episode you heard Aaron, Lily, Shan, Anne, Greta, Catherine, Julia, Geraldine, Derek, Jim, George, Meredith, Pab, Debbie, Lizzie, Alex, Ben, Alistair, Linda, Gregor, Shan, Catherine, Emily, Rachel, and I'm Hazel. And thank you for listening. This is an independent production, by which I mean I'm a mum making this in my bedroom and the only support that I have is that of my mum looking after the kids and my husband putting up with me going on and on about it. If you enjoyed the podcast and can tell your friends or share a link to it on social media or leave me a nice review, that would be amazing. Thank you.
2: It's so important what you're doing, Hazel. This is awesome. Thank you.
3: I hope so. (laughs) Yeah.
2: You're, you know, you're promoting conversation about this issue and that's, that's what people need to do. We need to talk about this a lot more publicly, you know?
3: So in the next episode, we're going to focus on plastic. My climates really care about plastic pollution. I promise it won't be rubbish.
10: But I mean, the bottom line is, I mean, nobody can imagine a world without it. Plastic, and I mean, plastic? Can you can you imagine a world without plastic?
3: And we're going to talk about nappies. I promise it won't be a load of shite. And so the quote I'd read was that if Shakespeare's
4: mother had... Um use disposable nappies, they would still be in our landfill sites now. You want to change the world, you can't stand by.
15: Uh, Just you know, man,
5: it stops inside. Climate Podcast. That
15: was gay. <laughs> <laughs>